Well, we are turning today to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them. And then let's go ahead and um, begin with a word of prayer. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, again, happy Easter to all of you. A reminder that Easter is not a day, it is a season, like Christmas is a season. Christmas, of course, is a relatively brief season, only a few days, about 12 days, but Easter is a much longer season, and so we uh, rejoice in the fact that we can continue to sing the Lord's praise and thank Him for His resurrection. And of course, we are a people of the resurrection all year round. Every Sunday is really a mini Easter, a feast of the resurrection. But how wonderful it is to be people of the risen Lord, to know that sin and death have been defeated and that we have the hope of new life. So we come to God's Word today with a great deal of anticipation and in thanks for His many blessings. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 27 through 28, and then we're going to go into chapter 2 today, but let's just start with verses 27 through 28. Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Um, last night, I had to fend for myself in, for, in terms of dinner. My wife um, normally has dinner ready for the family, but my daughter had a lacrosse match, and it was out of town, and so she took our son, and they all went off to the lacrosse match, and I was, after church, left to fend for myself. And while my wife is an excellent cook, I am not. Um, I can maybe make a, a scrambled egg, but that's about the extent of it. And so I decided to order out last night. I indulged myself and I ordered out, placed an order online, and then it was delivered via Uber Eats. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Uber Eats, it's like an Uber driver who picks you up and takes you somewhere. What they do is they pick up your food and they deliver it to your house. And when you place the order, you have to give your name so that the driver knows who you are and you also get their name. So you can be on the lookout for them. And then they notify you that the driver's getting close so that you can meet them at the door. My driver's name was Anastasia. So when uh, she drove up, I went out to meet her. She uh, put the window down and she said, are you Jeffrey? And I said, are you Anastasia? And she said, yes, I am. And I said, well, that's a wonderful name. I said, you know, that is the name of royalty. Anastasia was the youngest daughter of Tsar Nicholas II. And she said, yes, I know it's a royal name. And she said, you know, I'm royalty. And I said, are you really? And she said, yes, I'm a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I said, well, good for you. And I wasn't even wearing a clerical collar. 
But what she was saying was absolutely correct. By virtue of the fact that she was a Christian, she was indeed a member of a royal family, the most noble of all families, the family of God. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here in Philippians chapter 1, as he writes to these people that were so near and dear to his heart. He's talking about his circumstances and how he's locked away and in prison, but he's so grateful for the fact that they have remembered him. And he's so grateful for their faithfulness, for the fact that they are indeed part of a family. And now he encourages them to live a life worthy of that wonderful heritage. That's what he says in verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, perhaps some of you have been raised and your parents would say to you, uh, remember who you are. How many of you have ever had that your parents say to you on one occasion or not, remember who you are? That is to say, remember that you are part of a family, that you represent something more than yourself, that there are certain expectations that are laid upon you. Well, that is exactly what Paul was encouraging the Philippians to do. And because this word comes to us as well, Paul is saying the same to us. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy, worthy of this wonderful heritage that you have as a Christian person. Uh, be worthy of the gospel of Christ and of the relationship that you have with him. Well, what exactly does that mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? Uh, what does it mean to conduct ourselves in accord with this royal family that we are now a part of? Well, in order to understand how that operates, we need to understand what it really means to be a member of Christ's family, how we become a member of Christ's family, and what is expected of us as a child of God. Um, I, I titled this section, Becoming Royalty, because there is a sense in which that is exactly what has happened to us. I've used this analogy before, that when a prince, a member of a royal household, for example, decides to marry a commoner, uh, she may not have uh, that wonderful heritage that he has. She may not have a distinguished family. But the minute that she marries the prince, the minute that she takes the vows and is declared to be the wife of the prince, she automatically becomes royalty. Uh, she may enter the cathedral or the abbey as Miss So-and-so, but when she exits that abbey or that cathedral, she is Her Royal Highness. Now, she has become a princess. That doesn't mean that she necessarily knows how to act like a princess. But the fact is that a legal change has taken place in her status. She was once one thing. She is now something entirely different. Well, that is exactly what has happened to us. There is a sense in which you and I enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, who is the Lord of Glory. And we enter into the church, as it were, as a sinner, Miss Sinner. But when we come out of that church, having been united to Christ by faith, we become, in essence, Mrs. Christian. That's what happens to us. We are united. Um, it used to be, it's not necessarily the case anymore, but it used to be the case that when a woman went into a church, she was united to her husband, united to his family, and her name changed. Her name changed, so did her status. The same is true when we become Christians. 
Paul makes this very clear, not here in Philippians so much, but elsewhere in Ephesians. If you've got your finger there, just turn to Ephesians for just a moment. Uh, it's an easy book to find. It's the, the book that immediately precedes the one that we're studying. So it's immediately before Philippians. And I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul is writing to another Gentile church, the church in Ephesus, and he's reminding them of what they once were, but what they have now become. And here's how he puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles called the uncircumcision in the flesh by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. That's the first thing Paul says about the Ephesian Christians. He said, remember what you once were. What you once were, were you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That is to say, you were not part of the family. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. You were without hope and you were without God in the world. Now, that's a pretty bleak picture of their status. He said, that's what you once were. But look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul is saying you were once without hope and without God in the world, but now having married into the family, having become a, the bride of Christ, as it were, what that means is that you are now united to him. And all that is his is yours. You know that that's what happens. The old marriage vows used to say, and with my worldly gifts, I do thee endow. That's what the husband said to the wife. With all my worldly goods, I do thee endow. So what is being talked about when a person is married is a change in status. And that is exactly, Paul says, what happens to you and to me. It's what happened to the Philippians. It's what happened to the Ephesians. There was a change in their status when they were united with Christ. They became one with him, part of his family. And all that was his, all of the treasures that were his in salvation are given to us. Now, this is a legal status. This is a change in legal status. It's not a change in personality. When a commoner wears a prince and she becomes a princess, it now becomes her responsibility to live into that role. She has to begin to act and conduct herself in a manner that is worthy of her new position. So you and I, when we are united to Christ, are declared members of his family. We are declared righteous. That's the way the apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 3. Turn, if you will, to that great letter. It's Romans chapter 3, back to your left in your New Testament. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Paul says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, nobody's plate is clean. No one is righteous. Paul acknowledges that. And he said, and yet we are all justified by his grace as a gift. 
What does it mean to be justified? We said to be justified means to be in a right relationship with God. It means to be lined up with God. What Paul is saying is that no one is in a right relationship with God. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We come into a right relationship with God. How? By a gift. God declares us to be righteous. It is a gift of grace, his undeserved, unearned favor. We simply receive this by faith. It doesn't mean we are righteous in terms of our behavior. It means that in terms of our status with God, we are declared righteous. But having been declared righteous, now like that commoner who's become a princess, we are expected, Paul says, to begin to live a life worthy of this new status. We can no longer conduct ourselves as we once did prior to this new marriage, this new relationship, this new status, this new family. We have to begin to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of our new life. That's what he's talking about. And this is what Peter says in his first epistle. We're going to slip, flip around here quite a bit at the beginning of this class, and I apologize for that. But what you need to understand is that this is the testimony of Scripture. It's not just Paul that is saying this. We have all of the New Testament writers bearing witness to precisely the same thing. This is a common thread that you'll find throughout the New Testament. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, this is what Peter says. It's almost a repeat of what Paul is saying here in Philippians. Peter says, but as he who called you is holy you also must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. In other words, Peter is saying, remember who you are. Remember where you come from. Remember who your father is and conduct yourself in a manner worthy of that family of that status, of that position. To whom much has been given, much is required. So we are declared righteous, not by virtue of anything we do, but then having been declared righteous, having come into this new relationship, we are expected to live a life worthy of that new status. Now, how do you do that? How do you begin to live a life worthy of this high calling, of this new position that we have. Paul gives us the beginning of this way of becoming more righteous in Romans chapter 6, and he says something very unique. There are all kinds of spiritual disciplines that you and I can employ in our lives to help us grow in grace, to begin uh, living a life worthy of this new calling, just as a young princess who doesn't know how to live a royal life uh, can be trained. There are certain things that she has to learn, protocols, habits, patterns, so forth, certain things that she has to learn. There are many things that you and I need to learn as well. But the first step on the road, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, is to understand what we are now means that we cannot go back and be what we once were. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 11. He said, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying, 
you have to realize that having become something new, you can't go back to what you once were. He uses particularly strong language here. He uses the language of death and resurrection, appropriate Eastern language for us at this particular point in the year. He says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. You are a new creation. Paul says you can't go back. It's like growing up. Paul is basically saying we have to grow up. We have to recognize that you, you cannot go home back to the old ways anymore. You have to move on from where you are. We all know people who as adults act childishly, but when we see somebody who is an adult acting childishly, what do we say to them? We say to them, grow up. Now, I'm sure when you become an adult, there's always that desire to go back and act in a childish way. We would all like to go back to our childhood. It's ironic, isn't it? You see children who can't wait to become teenagers so that they can drive their car. And then 16-year-olds want even more freedom. They can't wait until they're 21 so that they can have their first drink. And those who are 21 can't wait to get out of college and get a job and live their own lives. And lo and behold, by the time they're 30, they wish they could go back and be 16 all over again. Because of all of the duties, all of the responsibilities that adulthood brings. And so when we see somebody who wants to go back and act in a childish manner, what do we say? We say, you have to grow up. That is exactly what Paul is saying. The first step in becoming a righteous person, having been declared a righteous person, is to grow up. To realize you can't go back and live the way you once did. The only thing you can do is move on. There's a great example of this from history in the person of Thomas a Becket. Uh, Thomas a Becket was the Archbishop of Canterbury. If you're familiar with the Canterbury Tales, then you know that that was written about pilgrimage to the martyrdom site of Thomas a Becket. Thomas a Becket was a friend of King Henry II of England. He was a, um, a worldly man, and he was appointed uh, chancellor of Great Britain. He was basically the chief legal officer in Britain, and he served the needs of the king. But Henry II had a burning desire to get his hands on the wealth of the church. Uh, the church in the medieval period was extremely wealthy. Uh, it owned large tracts of land and great treasures, and the king was not satisfied with what he already had. He wanted to get his hands on the church's money. And so what he decided to do was to appoint Thomas a Becket, who was not a clergyman, mind you, as Archbishop of Canterbury. This man was a, a, had a secular post in the government, chancellor of the exchequer. Uh, he was the chief legal officer, and then he became the chief financial officer, basically, of the kingdom. And uh, the only way the king felt that he was ever going to get his hands on the wealth of the church was to appoint one of his allies as the Archbishop of Canterbury, the chief leader of the church there in England in that time. And so he decided to appoint Thomas a Becket. Now, Thomas a Becket never found a call to the priesthood, let alone to the episcopate. But the king nevertheless ordered him to assume the position. Uh, it's an interesting story. He was ordained a deacon on one day, ordained a priest the next day, and ordained Archbishop of Canterbury the next day. And uh, Henry was excited about this because he thought then with this ally there as the chief religious officer in the church, 
that he was going to gain access to the church's money. But something happened in those ordination services. And what happened was that they took. And Thomas Beckett realized that he has now been placed in this high position. And he realized that this was a, a high calling. And his conscience was pricked. He suddenly realized that he was now in this high position and he needed to live a life that was worthy of this high calling. And so what happened was he began to take seriously the role of a father in God. He began to take seriously this role that he had as a bishop in the church. And Thomas Becket refused to hand over the church's treasures to the king. Eventually, they actually had a falling out over this. And at one point, the king, in a fit of frustration, supposedly said to a group of knights who were gathered around, who will rid me of this troublesome priest? And the story goes that the knights saw this as an opportunity, an opportunity to ingratiate themselves to the king, and so they went out. And while Thomas Becket was in prayer in Canterbury Cathedral, they went in and they hacked him to bits with broadswords. Now, that became a site of great pilgrimages. Uh, Thomas Becket became a saint, of course, a martyr. But the point of the story that I want you to grasp on is here was a man who suddenly had a change in status. He went from being just a commoner to suddenly becoming the Archbishop of Canterbury. It all happened in the course of three days. But having been given this high status, he now realized he needed to live a life worthy of that calling. Now, was there a price to be paid? Yes. But the point is that he understood that a change in status necessitated a change in behavior, and he began to live in accord with that. And Paul says the same is true for you and for me. We've had a change in status. We were once afar off. We have been brought near. We were once Miss Sinner. We have now become Mrs. Christian. And we are to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In other words, we are to be representatives of the king. We represent our family. We represent our father. This is why the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 describes the children of Christ, the children of God, as Christ's ambassadors. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is an official representative of a nation or a kingdom. Well, Paul says that's what you and I, we are Christ's ambassadors. He says Christ is making his appeal through us. Actually, the New Testament describes the people of God in two ways. One, as Christ's ambassadors, his emissaries, his official representatives in the world. But two, as citizens, citizens of another kingdom, citizens of heaven. Indeed, that is exactly what Paul is going to do later on in Philippians chapter 3. If you turn to Philippians chapter 3, the end of that chapter, here's what Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That means that you and I are not to regard ourselves first and foremost as citizens of this world but as citizens of heaven. We are simply 
pilgrims in this world. We are simply passing through this world. It's like visiting a foreign country. It's a wonderful thing to do. It's a wonderful experience to have, but you realize that you are not a citizen of that country. You still long to return home. I've traveled a large portion of the world. I've been over the Middle East. I've been to Europe. I've been to various places. And even though I, I love to travel and I love to visit different places in different countries, nevertheless, by the end of the journey, I am always ready to go home. Like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, I recognize there's no place like home. And my first loyalty will always be to my own country, to my own land. And Paul is saying the same must be true for us. When we become Christians, we become citizens of a different country and subjects of a different king. Do you recognize that? Do you recognize that you are first and foremost a citizen of the kingdom of God, that you are Christ's representatives here in this world, that this world, as the old hymn says, is not your home, you're just passing through? That's what Paul was saying to the Philippians. And so he's saying, given that fact, begin to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And he says two things about how we are to do that. Going back now to Philippians chapter 1, in verse 27, Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are, one, standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm in one spirit. That is to say, united. What Paul wants to see among believers is a unity in the spirit. Unity is one of the real signs of the Christian church, and it's one of the most important signs. Now, when I talk about unity, I'm not talking about unity as a facade. There are some people that think that the worst sin that the church can ever commit is schism. Now, if that's true, then the Reformation, of course, was a terrible tragedy in the 16th century, because Luther, Calvin, Melanchthon, and all those others, they broke off from the church at the time. Mind you, that was never their intention to break off from the church. Their intention was to reform the church, not necessarily to revolutionize it. But nevertheless, many people would say, well, that was a terrible tragedy because there was an ending of unity. But when Paul says that unity is a mark of the church, it's a mark of our new status in Christ, he's not talking about unity in a physical sense. He's talking about unity, and he says, in the spirit. He's talking about more than a facade. Paul is saying that we are united in the truth of the gospel. Keep your finger there in Philippians and turn back to John for just a moment. John chapter 17 is one of the most important chapters, I think, in the New Testament. If for no other reason than this, it is the only time in the gospels where we ever have the opportunity to actually encounter a prayer from Jesus himself. Uh, prayer for Jesus was a very personal thing. You may recall that on many occasions the disciples would go looking for Jesus and they would discover that early in the morning he had gone off to a lonely place to pray. And most of the time the Gospels don't record what Jesus said in those prayers because these were times of private communion. 
personal moments in which the, the son and the father spent together. What we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, actually wasn't the Lord's Prayer at all. It was a pattern for prayer. The disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us to pray. Well, obviously, prayer is a big part of your life. We can see that it gives you strength. It gives you courage. It gives you the wherewithal to persevere even in the face of great persecution. We want to have those same things. Teach us to pray. And Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, etc." It was a pattern for prayer, but it was not a prayer that Jesus himself ever prayed. Jesus never had to say, forgive us our trespasses, because he had never trespassed. So it was a pattern for prayer for the disciples, but it wasn't the Lord's Prayer. If you want the real Lord's Prayer, it's here in John chapter 17. It's sometimes referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's called the high priestly prayer because Jesus allows the curtain to be pulled back and his disciples to actually witness him praying. So this is the real Lord's prayer. Now you ask yourself, well, when Jesus prayed, what did he pray for? Well, one of the things that he was praying for here in John chapter 17, toward the close of his time with his disciples, was that he was praying for them. He was praying for Peter and Andrew, James and John, and all the rest. And what does he ask for? Well, let's take a look at John chapter 17, beginning at verse 17. He prays that they might be sanctified. That is a word that means 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 to be made holy. It means to be set apart. When we sanctify something, we set it apart for a holy purpose or a holy use. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In other words, the only way for a person to truly become a holy individual is for them to be made holy in the truth, the truth of the gospel, God's word. Then he goes on to say, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be consecrated in the truth. You find that that continuous refrain, the truth, the truth, the truth. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays for two things right there in those verses, particularly for his disciples. He prays, number one, that they may know the truth. And then secondly, he prays that they may be united in that truth. That they may be one as you, Father, and I are one. In other words, the only true unity that can exist in the church is a unity in the word. It's not just people living together. It is people being united in the truth of the gospel. C.S. Lewis once put it this way. He said, a friend is a one with whom you share the highest truth. Everyone else, he said, is a mere acquaintance. Now think about that for a minute. A true friend is one with whom you share the highest truth. Everyone else is a mere acquaintance. This is one of the things I tell young couples when they come to be married, and I do premarital counseling. I tell them that there are four things that are necessary for a successful marriage. I call them the four C's to a successful marriage. One is commonality. You've got to have some things in common with each other. You've got to enjoy doing certain things together. 
I know that opposites attract, but oftentimes it's those little differences that we're willing to overlook in that first flush of romance that over the course of time can really become irritants. So you got to have something in common. That's the, the first C. Second thing, C is communication. You've got to have the ability to communicate. I find that in many marriages, one of the major problems is the inability of a husband and a wife to communicate. One may be more emotional, one may be more cerebral, and they have the inability to communicate with each other. Communication is essential to a healthy marriage. So commonality, communication, commitment. We're living in an age in which people feel that they have a right to be happy. And if they're no longer happy with their spouse, then they owe it to themselves to get out of the relationship in order to become happy. But marriage at its heart is one of commitment. It's willing to plow through the difficult times. And here's the fourth C to a successful marriage. It is Christ. And I always tell people that if you have the fourth C, you've got the other three as well. If Jesus Christ is at the center of your relationship, the center of your family life, then you are going to have something in common. You're going to have the highest truth in common. If Christ is first in your life and first in her life, well, then what you discover is that everything else is of secondary importance. If Christ is at the center of your life, you're going to be able to communicate because you'll put the other person first before self. And if Christ is in your life, you will be committed because you'll be relying not on your own strength, but on his strength to make it through the difficult times. But without Christ, without that highest truth, everything is up for grabs. Well, that's what Paul is talking about here. Paul is saying that one of the signs that you are part of the family of God is unity, true unity. But it's not just this appearance of unity. It is a true, deep, lasting unity that is ours in Christ Jesus. And he says, when we have that unity in spirit, we also have a unity in purpose. Go back now to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 again. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. If you share the highest truth, you will also be united in your purpose, striving together. If the gospel is the most important thing in your life, then you will be striving together to advance the cause of the gospel. This is what theologians in a prior age used to refer to as the church militant. They spoke of the church militant and the church triumphant. The church triumphant are those saints who have died and gone on to their great reward. They're triumphant. Why? Because as Paul says, they have fought the good fight, they have kept the faith, they have finished the course, and now they have received that crown of life, that laurel wreath of victory. They are the church triumphant. But everybody else is what? We're the church militant. We're down here on earth, striving together, contending for the sake of the gospel to advance the good news of Jesus Christ, to make disciples of all men, and to teach them all that Christ has commanded us. 
So this is what Paul is saying to the Philippians, and he's what he's saying to us. He's saying, look, you are no longer what you were. You have been united to Christ. You are now part of a new family. You've been given a new status. You are royalty. Begin to love a life worthy of this new calling. Stand firm in the truth. Be united in the Spirit and strive together for the sake of the gospel. That is the sign that you are really members of the family of God. Now, at this point, Paul does something a little different. In verses 28 and 30, Paul takes a little detour. He he takes a little detour into the implications of living this life. He's encouraging the Philippians to live this new life, a life worthy of the calling to which they have been called. But he reminds them that while this is a wonderful calling, there will be those who will be opposed to it. Let me go ahead and read through verses 27 through 30 again, and just listen to the logic. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the, faith of the gospel. And here it is, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Isn't it interesting that Paul is encouraging the Philippians to live a life worthy of the calling to which they have been called, to be united in the truth of the gospel, and to contend for the sake of the gospel, but then all of a sudden he begins to speak of opposition. He says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Why does Paul talk about opposition? What appears to be a message of encouragement, suddenly he begins to talk about opposition. Well, the answer is clear. It's because to live this life, the life of Christ, is to live in a manner that is not praised by the world, accepted by the world. It is to live in a life that is counterculture. And when you live counter to the culture, there will always be opposition. You know, we don't like people who are different. Children oftentimes can be very cruel of other children who are different for whatever reason. We're afraid of differences, and the world hates Christians because they're different. Jesus actually acknowledged that fact. In John chapter 15, he warned his disciples. Now, mind you, John chapter 15 is part of what is known as the farewell discourse. These are some of the final things Jesus said to his disciples prior to his crucifixion, and one of the things he did prior to his crucifixion was warn them. He said, as the world hated me, the world is going to hate you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, because you are ambassadors of another king, the world hates you. 
So Paul acknowledges the fact that if you're going to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, if you are going to remember who you belong to, the world is going to hate you for it. But he says, in those moments, when you find yourself isolated, alone, rejected by the world, he says, don't be discouraged. This hatred is actually evidence, listen to this, of your salvation. You know, sometimes people will say to me, how do I really know that I'm saved? Well, one way you know that you're saved is if you are living a life worthy of your calling to which you've been called and you are facing opposition, persecution, rejection by the world as a consequence. That, Paul says, is actually evidence of your salvation. He said, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. What a message of encouragement in difficult times, especially in Western culture, where we're beginning to see more and more of the culture becoming not simply indifferent to Christianity, but actively opposed to it, actively opposed to the church, actively opposed to the idea of truth, beauty. That is actually evidence of our salvation if we are prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ. And what's more, Paul said, it is a testimony of God's judgment on the world and its standards. So in the midst of this, he says, there will be conflict. Paul acknowledges the fact that he himself is engaged in conflict. He says, you will suffer for the sake of Christ in the same way that I have suffered for the sake of Christ. But remember, he says, that you are not alone. Remember that you are not alone. That's why Paul talked about unity because there is strength in unity, especially in times of difficulty. This is one of the reasons why this COVID isolation is so dangerous for the church. There are many churches in this country that are still closed down, have been closed down for over a year. That means that people have been bereft of Christian fellowship, Christian encouragement. They're out there contending with the world, but they're having to do it by themselves. Paul says, Warfare is an unfortunate thing, but it is an unavoidable thing. Warfare with the world is unavoidable. It's not that we're picking a fight with the world, but the world cannot tolerate us. Why? Because our very manner of life stands in judgment against the world and its patterns and behavior. Now, when you think about strength and unity, there are a couple of things Paul says that should be an encouragement to us. First of all, he says, warfare, while always unpleasant, can actually be a unifying experience. It's one of those Romans 8.28 moments, God can work all things together for good. I think about Britain. I know the Sainsbury's are on this uh, Zoom call. Uh, they live in England. But I think about Britain in the 1940s, particularly in 1940 during the Blitz. My grandmother was from England. Um, she lived in Liverpool at the time, um, but Liverpool, Manchester, London, uh, these were cities that were great manufacturing centers, and they were bombed during the war. And I remember talking to my grandmother about this, and she talked about the fact that even though there was a great deal of death and destruction and fear and anxiety, she said she never saw people come together more than in that time of great threat. 
She said people were willing to make sacrifices for each other and for the sake of the nation, for the sake of servicemen that they would never have been willing to make under other circumstances. So we have to acknowledge the fact that warfare, even though it's a tragedy, it can actually unite a people in a common cause. Second thing Paul says is this, the family bond is the best means of unity. It's in times of conflict and warfare that we need our family. And he's not talking about our biological families, he's talking about our spiritual family. He says we need the spiritual family of God. And then he lists three advantages to this unity that we experience in times of warfare that we experience as the family of God. First of all, he talks about encouragement from his love. Encouragement from his love. He said, actually, when the people of God come together and they are concerned for each other and they love each other, even in the bleakest and most desperate of circumstances, it is actually a sign to the world of God's love for his creation. Let me show you a practical example of that. Keep your finger there in Philippians and turn back, if you will, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 for just a moment. This is a familiar passage. Many of you have probably heard these words before. There's just one thing in particular that I want to show you in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following. Acts chapter 2 is a picture of the early church. This is very early on after the Lord's ascension. It's after the day of Pentecost. Um, the church is growing. In fact, we're told that it's, it's growing day by day. But here we have a picture of what the early church looked like. It's a church that you and I want to aspire to be like, that St. Philip should aspire to be like. We should be like this church in Acts chapter 2. Listen to how the church is described. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Just in that one verse, a number of things is told us about the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is to say, they were a church that was devoted to the study of God's Word. The apostles' teaching is basically what becomes our New Testament. So they devoted themselves to preaching, to teaching. That was a high priority. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the faith once delivered to the saints. They devoted themselves to fellowship. That's the unity that we've been talking about. Fellowship, holding something in common. To the breaking of bread. That would be the service of Holy Communion and to prayer. So this early church devoted themselves to teaching and preaching, to getting together as the people of God, to communal worship, and to prayer. And look at verse 43. What was the consequence of this? And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed, here comes the critical part, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
In other words, if you were a part of the church in those early days, these were not wealthy people. As you know, Christianity started out among the lower classes. But no one, even in that time, no one was in any need. Why? Because everyone shared what they had with others. There was a unity in the truth. They were united in the apostles' teaching into the breaking of bread, to fellowship, to prayer. And because of that unity, they cared for one another. They provided for one another. Some people have said this is the first example of communism. It's not. This is not communism in the sense that we understand it today. Why? Communism is a forced sharing. Other people have said, well, it's socialism. Socialism is the same thing. It's a kind of forced sharing. Communism says that you can't own anything. The government owns it all. Socialism says, well, you can own some, but the government will tell you how much you can owe. But that's not what we're talking about here. There's no force sharing at all. These people freely gave to each other as any had need. Why? Because they were united in the truth of the gospel. They were living a life worthy of the calling to which they had been called. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And here's the critical verse, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was a church that was growing day by day. More people were coming in. Now, what you'll notice is they were not engaged in what we would call outreach. In these early days, they really weren't even engaged in what we would call mission work. Now, they shared the gospel as the opportunities presented themselves, but it's not until the 13th chapter of Acts, it's not for another 11 chapters, that the church actually becomes proactive and sends out missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, to target areas where the gospel had never been preached, to evangelize those foreign regions. That doesn't happen for another 11 chapters. At this point, the only thing they're doing is devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer, and they're caring for one another, and the Lord is adding to their number daily those who are being saved. Why were people flocking to the church from the outside? Because they looked at the way these Christians loved one another. And in that culture, where it was every man for himself, where it was dog-eat-dog, dog, they saw a group of people who were united in the truth, united in purpose. It wasn't some facade of unity. It was a genuine unity, a genuine concern, a genuine love, and they so cared for each other that those on the outside were provoked to jealousy, and they said, I don't know what those people have, but whatever it is, I want to be a part of that. Well, here's the question. Do we want to see a church like St. Philip's grow? Do we want to see our congregation grow day by day? More and more people coming in and being saved? Then Paul says we have to begin to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We are sons and daughters of the Most High. We need to begin to live as sons and daughters of the Most High. We need to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, 
to fellowship, to prayer. And if we find anyone in our midst who has a need, we need to provide for that. And by the way, in order to know if anyone has a need, you have to know each other. And if we become that kind of a church, begin to live a life worthy of the manner to which we have been called, as Paul says here in Philippians chapter 1, then all will come upon all our members. Signs and wonders will be done, and the Lord will add to our number daily those who are being saved. That's what it means to be sons and daughters of God. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether Paul says, I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. May God grant us the grace to be that kind of people, to be princes and princesses, ambassadors for the kingdom of God, remembering to whom we belong. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise. We all have been given a royal name. You, O oh Father, are our Lord and Master, Jesus, our Savior, is our brother, and we are brethren in Christ. Grant us the grace to recognize this, to recognize that we are just pilgrims passing through this land. Our citizenship is in heaven, and grant us the grace to live a life worthy of that citizenship for your glory and honor. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you. And uh, it's good to be back after a quick break from Easter. And uh, we will continue to study Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Some people have asked, when are we going to break? We'll probably break in the summertime, as we normally do in June, July, and August, so the staff can get their breaks. But uh, in the meantime, we're going to continue to study this wonderful letter to the Philippians. But I look forward to seeing you and hope to see you in church very soon.